1: This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. Money in sports, it's one of the reasons
2: why I enjoy being on Monday Night Countdown with ESPN is we talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. There's all kinds of cool questions, so this is a fun topic to me. The country
0: is finally, deeply getting the memo about how amazing this sport is. I think the sky's the limit for MLS.
1: Increasingly, we're spending more and more of our time in a digital world,
3: and it's also becoming a really powerful place for commerce. It is so nice to be back to be able to have fans back in the building, so despite the chaotic schedule, this is why we do what we do. Bloomberg Business of Sports, from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show, where we explore the big money issues, and I mean big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. Coming up today, we speak with SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey about Monday's National Championship. The competition in college football, Alabama and Georgia. The division edition also of Oklahoma and Texas in 2025. That's coming up and more straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. A lot of stories out there, but let's start with one that is kind of intriguing. The uh, New York Times, they have agreed to buy the subscription sports site, The Athletic. The deal is said to be worth, Scarlett, $550 million.
4: Yeah, which is actually below what there were reports. Yes, which was actually below uh, the reports that The Athletic was looking for a valuation of more than $750 million. So interesting that perhaps they're not getting exactly what they wanted. But this kind of deal just shows content is king and paid niche content really is supreme. Um, the Athletic has over a million subscribers and they've snatched up a lot of the best talent in terms of sports writers. I mean, Lynchy, you would know this better than anyone um, in terms of the, the the folks who can do the reporting on the stories that that people want to read and people are willing to pay up for it. I'm curious whether The New York Times will keep this separate or whether they will fold it into its own paywall?
3: I think that's the big question right there. The Athletic has formed its own identity and its own brand. And they have some great writers. Uh, Ken Rosenthal is one of them, by the way. Um, But they went through a really tough time during COVID because when there weren't any, there was... Wasn't any content to report on, but they they sort of survived, and I think this is the perfect opportunity for the Athletic to be acquired by the New York Times, and I I think they would keep their own identity. Like the New York Times owns a piece of the Boston Globe, and the Boston Globe has its own identity and brand. Oh, that's, that's true. That's the way I see it playing yeah, out. Yeah, my
4: New York Times subscription does not carry over to me accessing the Boston Globe.
3: Uh, well, I can help you anytime you need me. <laughs> Are we supposed to be saying this out loud? Say <laughs> <laughs> the quiet part out loud,
1: Scar. All <laughs> there's stories to talk about. Rafael Nadal uh, he expressed a little sympathy for Novak Djokovic after Australian authorities said they would deport the Serbian tennis champ over his vaccination status ahead of the Australian Open. Let's start first of all with Djokovic. Trying to get in Australia, he apparently said that he had an exemption, Scarlett, but uh, then the Australian official said, uh, no, you did
4: He did get exemptions, but the prime minister's office stepped in in the end and said, no, no one gets an exemption from these rules that we've set up in place to keep Australians safe. It's really interesting that there was a lot of backlash against um, Australia giving Djokovic these exemptions, and perhaps that pressured Scott Morrison's office to, to make this move. It kind of reminds me of um, a different context, but Nicole Kidman, when she went to Hong Kong to film mm-hmm. a TV show or movie, um, she was exempted from having to quarantine for the ridiculous two or three weeks that Hong Kong required. She was able to just kind of show up and and film on the peak rather than than sit in a hotel room. And Djokovic, it looked like, would be able to do just that because he's not vaccinated and and play in the Australian Open.
1: According to a statement Lynchy from the Australian Border Force. Mr. Djokovic failed to provide appropriate evidence to meet the entry requirements to Australia, and his visa has been subsequently canceled.
3: And he's in an immigration detention hotel with asylum seekers and refugees. The two accepted conditions for an exemption, one, you must have shown a serious adverse reaction to a dose of the COVID-19 vaccination which he hasn't had. And number two, this is the one I think he's leaning on, evidence of a positive test for COVID-19. He tested positive in June. Now, here we are. We're just coming to that six-month window from whatever date it was in June. We're in January right now. But whatever documents he brought with him were not accepted by Australia. So right now, he's in limbo and is not eligible to play in the Australian Open.
1: Now, as I mentioned earlier, Rafael Nadal, he, he didn't have much sympathy for <gasps> Novak Djokovic. Nadal pretty much said uh, he knew the deal. <laughs> what he actually said, by the way, Nadal, who is twice vaccinated, said, in some way, I feel sorry for him. But at the same time, he knew the conditions for months.
4: That's even worse.
1: Pity. that's usually what i got on a lot of dates back in the day but but yeah i mean it's you know it's now let's be honest i mean we're talking about some some top-rated players now the the money involved in this is that you know what happens to all those sponsorships for novak djokovic Mm -hmm. because they're expecting like hey he's going to go and try to defend his title and all of a sudden, this is all
3: thrown up in the air now.
4: Or the betting lines at that.
1: Yeah. Oh,
3: yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I'd and it's a major. Like golf, tennis has four majors, and this is the first of the year, the Australian Open. All the, all the logos that he wears on his, his shirt, uh, his racket, um, all those things. If he's not in the tournament, there's a lot of make-goods coming, uh, coming the sponsor's way.
1: Now, also... Uh, let's talk about the Super Bowl. You know, here I am. I'm all set. I'm ready to see Super Bowl 56. It's supposed to be at SoFi. And now all of a sudden... SoFi in L.A., right? Yes. uh, Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the NFL might be looking for an alternative city because, Scarlett, COVID.
4: Yeah, the California to Texas migration continues. First, it was billionaires. Then it was tech companies at large. Or maybe I got the order wrong there. But now it's the NFL potentially with the Super Bowl. Um, The concern here is that California, L.A. in particular, have some very stringent COVID restrictions. And we know that Omicron is raging through the nation and it's LA is probably a little bit behind what we're seeing here on the East Coast, and so by the time you have the Super Bowl on Sunday, February thirteenth, um, Omicron may be peaking. It may not be peaking, but perhaps the NFL just doesn't want to deal with all of that.
3: Lynchy, well, this uh, is this is.
1: Yeah, I was yeah. going to say it was. This is something that you know supposed to be just a contingency plan.
3: Yeah, uh, they do this every year, just in case there's some type of an emergency where they have to shift it. They always have an alternative site, but it's getting a lot of attention now because of COVID. SoFi was supposed to host it last year, but the stadium wasn't ready, so they flipped. It was Tampa went last year, SoFi this year. Oh, that's good and extra
4: drama there.
3: It, it certainly <laughs> is. And the thing that I, seems bizarre to me is why you build an a indoor stadium in Southern California. Isn't there a song, It Never Rains in California? And uh, I would just think it's, uh, you know, I, I always thought it should have been an open air or with a retractable roof at SoFi. So the Rose Bowl last year was shifted from Pasadena to Arlington, Texas, and this is being considered the same stadium where the Cowboys play their home games, AT&T Stadium, as an alternative should COVID just just ramp out of control and they have to move the Super Bowl.
1: And today we are talking college football with SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey. Holy smokes, Mr. Sankey. That's right, you get the Mr. Sankey because if you're the SEC Commissioner, you're the mister. Welcome to the show, sir.
2: Thanks, I, well, I'll give you permission to just call me Greg.
1: Oh. But, but it's
2: good to be with you. Uh, fun time of year.
1: Oh man, we're in! <laughs> this, And you're right, uh, we got uh, the big matchup, georgia Alabama uh, coming up for the championship games, coming up on Monday. Uh, My goodness, I'm sure everybody's excited about this.
2: Well, I know in in my region, certainly, even though we have pretty intense rivalries within our league, um, it it creates interest. And we saw this matchup just a few years ago and, and had great interest nationally. And I would expect an incredibly intense competitive environment and, you know, last time it's the one CFB game that went to overtime. So if we can experience something like that with great competition, I think it'll draw everyone's interest.
4: It's going to be a huge game. And in reading up on everything about you, and your name has shown up quite a bit in the press recently, you've been called the king of college sports, a gatekeeper <laughs> to the future of college sports, the most powerful commissioner in college football, um, pretty incredible accolades. Why do you think the SEC is... So influential, so much more influential with more resources and reach than the rest of the conferences?
2: Well, a few things are front and center. One, you know, the, the sport of football does have this prominence in our nation and in our region. Uh, we have uh, built programs uh, on the campuses of great universities that have had success. This is now the 12th time. Um, in the last 16 years, we're guaranteed to win a national title in football, and that's remarkable for any sport. Uh, You also see a level of attention in in our region, you know, demographic shifts, the prominence of our universities, increasing enrollment, um, the the leadership of those universities, our athletics programs, and our football teams. And then we've had this across-the-board success in our athletics program that's quite remarkable. And you then add to that uh, the nature of, of people who've gone through our athletics programs to do uh, great things. You know, you watch on Monday Night Football, Peyton and Eli Manning. Um, a different approach to broadcasting, but one's an Ole Miss grad, one's a Tennessee grad. Uh, and their dad has a, a legendary status in our region. You just multiply that over and over. Um, and I think all of that attention uh, focuses on the Southeastern Conference in, in a positive way and is reflective of our expectations of excellence.
3: Years ago, Doug Flutie won the Heisman Trophy for Boston College, and at the time, Boston College was considered a regional school. But the number of applications and the quality of applicants after he won the Heisman, and his notoriety certainly changed what Boston College is today. Do you see the same similarities with the success of your athletic programs in relation to the number of applicants and the quality of applicants?
2: I think both um, are are true uh, across our region, and there are any number of elements that contribute to the changing nature of enrollment on our campuses. Um, There is intent involved, so as our campuses have grown their enrollment, Um, they each have their own strategies, but athletics uh, achievement is a part of that strategy. Uh, That's one part though, Um, the ability to attract faculty, uh, increase research dollars, uh, build facilities on campus for students, that are, are world-class, um, that is a, the reflection, or, or that is a reflection on the leadership provided to our campuses that also benefits our athletics programs and our athletic uh, so success. So, uh, you know, the fluty factor was the label applied to that. Um, it was a pretty narrow lane in some ways, and I think broadly uh, what we see on our, our 14 campuses at present is that Kind of approach or that line of thought magnified, uh, both over decades of time, uh, but also across the entire university campus—not just in enrollment, but that that the development of campus, the attraction of faculty, and the, the continuing multiplication of success
1: athletically. Now, if the SEC didn't have enough full of a garage of super Lamborghini cars. You decided to add two more shiny automobiles with Oklahoma and Texas. They're going to join the SEC beginning with the 2025 football season. Can you tell us about the impact and what that means for the SEC?
2: It's um, a compliment when two great universities and their athletics programs reach out to to you or to us uh, inquiring about membership opportunities. Uh, that uh, goes back in, in a lot of ways even before me, but when I went through the interview process uh, for the commissioner's role, I had this statement in kind of a 10-year plan that people would be asking us about our success. How do we achieve and how do we sustain the level of success across the board? And that was media conversations like we're having today. That was hopefully business experts and, and the academicians asking what can we learn from them, but our, our peers. And and I think you saw with the outreach and then our decision to extend a membership invitation that was accepted uh, to incredible universities seeking to affiliate with, with our 14 universities. Um, I'm excited about our future. Uh, I, I've described this morning I was asked kind of a specific question about football schedule I said I think you need to take a step back and consider the wow factor that exists right now around the Southeastern Conference and how that will be magnified come 2025 when we go to 16 member universities.
4: This may seem an obvious question or a dumb question. Um, with Texas joining the SEC in 2025, does that name, the Southeastern Conference, get stretched a little bit? I mean... Will you start admitting schools that are west of Texas?
2: No, that's not been contemplated at this point. Um, you know, if you if you look at a quadrant of a map, um, you can define uh, Oklahoma and Texas as part of the southeast. With, with Austin, we only we only shift about an hour and a half from College Station, so it's not a huge geographic uh, transition for us. And, and Oklahoma is a contiguous state with both. Arkansas and Texas. And and I really think there's um kind of a philosophical commitment and approach on campus and an athletics program between Oklahoma and Texas that's consistent with our fourteen members. And I think that philosophy, you know, when, when we do when we when we provide advert or produce advertising we have this, it just means more tagline. Some of our athletics directors have said that's kind of a filter as we think about who might be out there. And there aren't many that would that would meet that that uh, definition or that expectation, if you will. And uh, we've been smart, I think, about our geography, uh, and we're smart demographically and smart philosophically with the additions we've experienced over the last decade.
3: Greg, um, when Texas and Oklahoma come, obviously there's uh, a domino effect. We've seen it already with the Big 12, the American Athletic Conference, and and I know this has happened with other leagues, the ACC and the Big 10 as well. And while the SEC gets bigger and stronger, do you have an immediate concern about the greater good of college athletics?
2: I do, and those are thoughts that when you're going through consideration are asked by our presidents and chancellors, asked of me by our presidents and chancellors. Um, I, I, I think you have to look at the history of college sports and understand these membership shifts have occurred uh, on a nearly continual basis. There may be time periods where there, there's gaps, uh, but the movement, and, and you identified, uh, you know, go back to the early 90s and the Penn State move to the Big Ten or the ACC in the early 2000s, uh, uh, inviting three Big East members to move, and then a subsequent uh, ACC expansion, uh, the Big Ten adding Rutgers, Maryland, uh, after Nebraska uh, about 10 years ago, uh, and the Pac-12 expansion with, with Colorado and Utah. So this, this, sh- this shift, this change has been constant. Um, I, I look at the opportunity. I look at that philosophical consistency uh, as appropriate for us. And we've also seen over time other conferences adjust, adapt, and uh, you've seen that with our Big 12 colleagues, others considered Membership change and ultimately decided to not do so, while while some felt it in their best interest. So I I think there's an opportunity for stability. Uh, There are no guarantees that there won't be movement. And as conferences make these decisions, they need to be made um, with that, that philosophical consideration I described earlier for us, the consistency of the programs athletically, the universities. Uh, performing at a high level academically, uh, the geographic sense uh, that, that was present for us, as well as um, the demographics that um, continue to build our conference. So, all of those opportunities made sense. They won't make sense in every circumstance, um, and they won't make sense in everyone else's consideration. So, I, I think the greater good can still be achieved. Um, there are, are, you know, there's always going to be difficulties and um emotions attached these change but we've always um, through this change been able to to move forward collectively and i think we can do that
1: here as well let's talk about the elephant in the room quite frankly COVID. and i thought we had a great chance to to get by it this season uh and unfortunately it has reared its ugly head uh, and a number of bowl games this season uh, have been canceled or at least delayed because of what has happened with this virus. How is the SEC going to prepare to deal with COVID, not only for Monday's big game, but in the future? <laughs> that is uh,
2: <laughs> the question that just won't go away yeah. in my life. Uh, it's like every time we think we're out, we get dragged right back yeah. in.
4: How much of your day spent thinking about this and talking about this? Sorry to interrupt. Uh,
2: yeah, no, it's daily. That's that's a, a really important question. Uh, so let's let's go back two years, which is hard to believe. You know, two years at this time, we had heard of this coronavirus, and I'm not even sure if it had the COVID 19 label. And we started as a conference in really late January when there were media reports of positive COVID cases on two of our campuses, both by the way, proved to be erroneous, but it it triggered for us in the SEC office the need to be thinking, communicating, um, and strategizing about how we're going to move forward with healthy competition, knowing very little about COVID-19. And so I had two staff members who were the conduits for communication, kind of locked down, if you will. Uh, that communication strategy, we started talking with public health officials. We actually conducted championships in an enormously healthy way until we had to stop in March of 2020 at our men's basketball tournament. Stopped everything. And immediately after that, we, it took about three weeks, we appointed a medical advisory task force uh, a re- representative from all 14 of our campuses. And it's a variety of expertise, infectious disease specialists, athletics trainers, orthopedists. Um, internal medicine. And, and their collaboration has guided us forward. And it's been incredibly important. And the key is, I think they thought they were signing up for like 60 or 90 days of, of voluntary participation with mm-hmm. the Southeastern Conference. You know, that's that sounds important and rewarding and great, and it is. And we're still working with them. And we adjusted protocols Um, right before the CDC five-day adjustment was made. And then we've adjusted again that that group meets every week. We've had uh, basketball games uh, postponed or not played. And, you know, some question about whether those will be able to be rescheduled. We lost one of our 13 bowl games because of an increase in positive COVID cases. On the other hand, we've had great success playing relative to the challenges we face. I know the two programs looking to the national championship game have over two years' time uh, managed very well and very effectively at at keeping their players healthy and avoiding kind of mass outbreaks that would create the need to stop.
4: In August of 2021, you sent out a tweet and asked fans essentially to get vaccinated. I'm just curious what kind of blowback, feedback... Uh, response you got from from people directly. How how do you feel that message got across?
2: Well, like anything in our society, there are are poles involved, right? And and I mean polar opposite perspectives. And so, if you followed my Twitter feed that day, there were those who said, "Hey, look, good for the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference encouraging people to to access the vaccine," and others who said, "You know, stay out of my business. It's none of your none of your." Um, it's not in your purview to determine whether or not I'm vaccinated. And that tweet really went back the previous year, where I had all these people asking me to help us play, both student athletes participating, uh, coaches, uh, the public, and so it seemed fair to identify first that our teams had achieved remarkably high vaccination rates relative to the general public or any you know specific cohort they're in. Um, And the public who wanted us to continue to play can help us uh, achieve that goal again in 21 by accessing vaccines. Now, uh, a lot of confusion, concern, debate, discussion, but that was and still seems one of the best strategies, the accessing of vaccinations uh, for COVID-19, one of the best ways for us to stay as healthy as possible.
3: Greg, what were some of the financial consequences of COVID and were any programs uh, eliminated from any of your member schools?
2: Well, real proudly, no, we did not eliminate any of our a- athletic teams during COVID-19. Um, if you go from that, we did have personnel adjustments across the league, you know, positions not filled. There were some positions that, that on, on campuses and it's all campus decision-making. That's not driven by the conference office. Um, the, we had workforce reductions like anyone else did um, in the conference office. We, we had some positions not filled. We kept our our salaries flat during the, the, the peak of COVID. And, you know, big picture, uh, we were reduced in football to about 20%, 25% capacity. In fact, at Vanderbilt, they had no fans through the football season. Uh, we impacted our basketball attendance, and it wasn't until baseball season that we saw fans back in our stadiums in large numbers. And so moving through uh, 2021 was, was filled with fiscal challenges, and I think our, our program's managed very well, and that's identified by the fact we kept all of our participation opportunities intact. Uh, you know, for example, for the first time ever, uh, Kentucky Volleyball won an NCAA Women's Volleyball National Championship. We never had that happen, and I think that shows the value uh, of playing and the value of the support provided. Uh, we were able to meet our, our, our television contractual uh, requirements, which kept uh, our conference revenue uh, very healthy. In fact, uh, when we were in the summer of twenty making projections, uh, you know, we had kind of a worst-case and best-case scenario. We weren't to the best-case scenario fully, but we were much closer than we might have predicted at the peak of, of the uncertainty in that summer of 2020.
1: And let's talk about the three letters that have invaded college sports in general. NIL, name, image, and likeness, deals are being made now left and right. Did you ever think that you would see something like this in college sports?
2: Well, probably not 10 years ago. Uh, 10 months ago, yeah, yes, you could see it coming, and, and maybe even a couple of years prior to that, I think after the adoption of the California Law, the, the state law in California, in uh, the fall of nineteen, uh, our attention came came firmly on the changes coming. A um, number of dominoes that have fallen since then. Whether it's state laws, um, you know, congressional interest, but no action, or a Supreme Court decision in the Alston case, all of that combined to, to place us where we are. And, and I'll admit to having lack the full imagination to see what's in front of us now, but uh, we're going to continue to adjust and adapt. It it appears necessary to do so.
4: What specific deals have you monitored and and kept your eye on and, and maybe have surprised you in terms of how they're being managed so far and how they're playing out?
2: We're not engaged in the monitoring activity. This activity under the name, image, and likeness heading is permitted under state laws. And so those state laws vary. And when we're asked about compliance issues, unlike past years where we might provide an NCA rule interpretation, we're sending our schools back to their university counsel or their state attorney general. And that uh, th- those laws will determine monitoring. So most of what we hear might be shared by schools or reported by schools or typically through media reports. Um, or
4: announced by students right? themselves, right, on Twitter. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. In fact, I was flying back from Omaha after uh, Vanderbilt and Mississippi State played in the final of the College World Series uh, in July 1st. It struck midnight on, on June 30, and I was watching in an overnight flight, you know, all those deals announced on various Twitter feeds. So it, it's a different reality. It is uncomfortable in, in many ways. But... Uh, they're also rewarding opportunities for young people if if their uh, approach is well managed.
3: In a previous life, Greg, I know you were a compliance uh, director at a university. Is this uh, just taking on a whole new life of its own in terms of staffing at each individual school in your conference?
2: It's taken on a life of its own in in the, the adjustment, the pivot from being able to call the NCAA national office, or conference offices and just have. Yes or no answers often given or asked for the, an interpretation because it's it's either state law based or campus policy based. I don't think it's resulted in a huge ramping up from a personnel standpoint. That said, uh, we do have programs that have added either personnel or form relationships to help them. Uh, managed through this, this new onboarding of name, image, and likeness, and and so I think they've they have again in compliance with their state laws managed well. Not a huge personnel impact yet, but uh, you know keep in mind July 1st is when we saw the onset of name, image, likeness. We go into a football season. There's not a lot of time. I would I would expect the level of activity over the next six months to really be the educational and adaptation. Uh, segment at least in the initial um, onset of name and likeness activity.
1: I have to bring up something that it, it is that's why it is a real honor to talk with you. The SEC was formed in 1933 and there have only been eight that have led the SEC as a commissioner and you are the eighth it, it, Does the impact of that hit you sometimes? when you're talking about such a conference that has such history behind it and only 8 of you all have led this
2: yes is the short answer in fact i can i'm able to remember i was commissioner of the southland cop and you know, Bloomberg never called me when I was south Commissioner <laughs> for an interview. So, the business of sports uh, show was uh, non existent then, <laughs> but yeah, probably so. so. I also, you know, I'm also, I'm often, in I was asked in federal court if the SEC is confused my SEC with the Securities <laughs> Exchange Commission. So we may confuse some people with this interview, right? <laughs> um, it, it is. In fact, the, the two, uh, I know the, the three commissioners who served ahead of me, Harvey Schiller, Roy Kramer, and Mike Slive, And particularly with Roy and Mike, you know, I walked into a room in the early 90s. I was actually in my late 20s. I was substituting for the Southland Commissioner, and just in awe of, of Roy Kramer, who I'd read about and I'd seen in the distance. And so to come to know him as a friend um, is incredibly rewarding. And, and the same for Mike Slive and, and to sit in the office that they both occupied, uh, sometimes, in different chairs in that office, making decisions around a table that's been in that that room for the past thirty years uh it 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 is not lost on me um the magnitude of of who we are and what we do, but also the weight of the responsibility of of leadership and uh, every one of us stands, if you will, on the shoulders of one who served before, and, and I'm certainly hopeful that those who follow me will look back and, and and speak well of me and my leadership during what is a fascinating time to serve in a role of a conference commissioner.
4: Yeah, absolutely, a ton of change. I, I'm curious also because I was reading how you had a conversation with your basketball coach in college during a game your freshman year that really made an impact on you and, and stirred your interest in working in college sports. So in a way your heading up the SEC is kind of the culmination of that that interest so many years ago, so many decades ago. What do you remember from that time that kind of carries you through now as you oversee the SEC?
2: Yeah, it was uh, it was my college baseball coach.
4: Oh, okay, uh, baseball, got it.
2: In my, my freshman year, yeah. And uh you know, it was a knock on my, my dorm room door on a Sunday evening, and I opened the door, and there's uh, Roger Kiefer, the, who's the baseball coach at Laterno College, and that was uh, not normal for me. So I can remember the shock at seeing my baseball coach. We went into a lounge and had a one-on-one conversation where we talked about the day before I hadn't played in the game. It was a doubleheader, and I had played against that opponent previously and, and had my first my first hit in college, my first start. And so I became that immature freshman, moping around, not participating. And he really spoke to me about leadership and my role on that team. And you know, I, I was you know shocked. I'm a freshman backup catcher, not ever thinking about my impact on others. And when I wasn't the same, when I wasn't a participant in in the way he expected, I hurt the team, even though I was not on the field. And that really just spurred a thought about. His impact on me, and I was an engineering major at the time, and I didn't see myself doing that, Uh, whether that was the right or wrong decision. It's the decision that that ultimately came, uh, led to me working in education, uh, because I wanted to impact people in that same way, Uh, the competitive environment attached to the educational setting. Um, there are plenty of cynics. We've got over 250 graduate patches on our bowl team participants. You'll see dozens of them on in the national championship game in Indianapolis. Uh, to me, those are real. Those are young people achieving a goal. And I wanted to be part of that somehow. And, you know, it, it came to a second conversation. My wife and I had been married about three months, and I was finishing a master's degree at Syracuse University. And was required to complete an internship, and she and I just had a conversation where I said, "I wonder if I can work in Division One college sports, and if so, how far it might go." And you know, here I am. So, those those two moments that that freshman year conversation where uh, my baseball coach al- altered my thinking about my role and my leadership ability, and then uh, a conversation just the willingness um, <laughs> for two newlyweds to explore what might be out there. That that culmination is here, and there's still plenty of work ahead, but uh, it's not lost on me that I go back to that moment in the spring of 83, and uh, really, in, in many ways, uh, uh, a life-changing, a course-changing conversation for me.
3: That's a great story, Greg, and I'm sure that there are were- Countless of listeners out there who have gone through similar situations with coaches. Um, I want to bring up the other dance partner with, uh, that we couldn't imagine would be a dance partner with, with student-athletes uh, even five years ago, and that's legalized sports betting. <laughs> um, I, each state is different. I know in your conference, I think uh, Louisiana, Arkansas, Kentucky, and Mississippi are in right now. Is this something that you've coaches and compliance people and athletic directors just have to be vigilant with
2: 24-7? Yes. Um, we, we, we monitored the, the Supreme Court decision that, that really struck down the PASPA legislation and altered the ability for the federal government to engage in the way it had. Um, we had encouraged some oversight uh, at the federal level. That's not happened, so it's not left to the state. And, you know, there are a few elements. One, we we engage with um, an integrity monitoring service on a weekly basis, monitoring our games, learning what's taking place. We have a pretty good understanding of the amounts that are being uh, wagered on college sports and and even on uh, our games. And the scope of that, that one thinks about football, but, you know, sometimes volleyball matches are included in legalized sports wagering. And that's not been a talk of topic of conversation. The second element is we're seeing an enculturation of sports gambling. So it has existed. We've known it has existed, but it's been in the shadows in different ways. As that behavior becomes more normalized, that magnifies the need for attention and vigilance. And, you know, information is gold in this. Um, sports wagering endeavor and in college sports we've been uh, very different in our approach to sharing information or controlling information that has been done in the professional leagues and you know there are values in involved in that you know do you want to be involved in supporting sports wagering with uh, unpaid um amateur athletes uh Versus a professional sport that has injury reports and and very clear protocols. So we have to adapt to that information management and and try to manage leaks. And then there's a history in college sports. You you can go back to point shaving scandals, you know, where Boston College was touched by it, New York City, Madison Square Garden in the, in the, in the 50s in basketball, and then any other number of ad hoc cases across the, the country. Uh, magnifies the need as sports gambling at the college level becomes more enculturated, uh, magnifies the need for integrity monitoring and attention uh, to to key issues, those around the program. And and I'll end with this. Uh, We've had a lot of discussions about the mental health of young people participating in college sports. And I think these mental health issues are across the spectrum in our society, but particularly in college sports, uh, I've been, Vocal. I've spoken about it. We engage our campus mental health leaders. They um, speak to me about it. In fact, I had a conversation at the Sugar Bowl with one of our our mental health counselors and the, the support needed. I've also talked to professional athletes, PGA Tour members, where professional golf is the center of gambling internationally and the impact on them through social media or messages that come through different ways. I think we have to be sensitive to the pressure on an 18-year-old lining up to a field goal or missing a free throw that relates to meeting or not meeting Mm. the spread or the over-under. Those are real issues that are are another element of that new front-and-center thinking for our programs.
1: SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey, and I have to give you this plug. You guys announced a 10-year media agreement. With the Walt Disney Company, ABC, back in December of 2020, it starts 2024-2025 that ABC will be the new broadcast network home for Saturday afternoon football games and select primetime football games and the annual SEC football championship. We're short on time, but I have to ask you the impact of that before we let you go. Well,
2: it's obvious there's revenue, there's exposure, um, that provides us flexibility um, compared to the past few decades with our kickoff times, which is a, a fan-friendly approach from an attendance standpoint where uh, we can project game times out much earlier so our fans can plan their travel. Um, we've got more platforms available and with Disney, ABC, ESPN, what they've done digitally what they've done with cable and satellite and what what they have with ABC and broadcast TV. Having the access to that spectrum of delivery platforms uh, was another important element of our future opportunities. We've had great success with ESPN, with the SEC network, our our basic broadcast agreements, and our own conference network. And we're excited about our future when that migration happens in the 24-25 academic
1: year. Scarlett Fu has the business acumen, Mike Lynch has the deep sports acumen, and I'm that fool. Hey, I talked to SEC Commissioner Mike Sanke, uh, Greg Sankey. <laughs> I'm I'm just really impressed. and uh, Thank you so much, sir, for talking with us. That really is neat.
2: Thank you for the interest, and hopefully
1: this has been helpful and interesting.
0: Thank,
4: thank you, you, Greg. Really appreciate it.
1: Very much so. Take Thanks, care. Greg. Greg Sankey, you talk about some of the most powerful people in sports in general uh commissioner of the sec Scarlet. Uh, it's very interesting to hear him talk about uh the the conferences and and the teams involved especially now that you know you have two other teams that are probably going to join uh within what 2025 mm-hmm. oklahoma and texas
4: yeah and no matter what happens with the um the actual championship, the SEC wins, right? Because you've got two teams in the SEC already competing, Georgia and Alabama. So SEC wins overall, and they've been winning. Four different schools have won the national title since 2006 um, from the SEC, and either Georgia or Alabama will become the next one. I'm, I'm interested in how he's suddenly become or has a higher profile in the last couple of years as his uh, – as his stature has grown, he, he's talking more to the press, whereas before he was fairly low-key.
1: Lynchy, this is something, you know, first of all, and I really did, I had to think about it when I was driving home, thinking, we talked to Greg Sankey, this, this is a pretty big-time dude yeah. here in sports. Yeah.
3: Well, he negotiated this monster deal with ESPN and ABC for the Southeast Conference, which kicks in in 2025, just in time for Texas and Oklahoma to come in. That has doubled what they've been getting from CBS over the years. And I was looking at the salaries of the uh, big uh, Power Five teams conferences, and he's down the bottom at $2.9 million. The commissioner of the Big Ten makes over $10 million a year. And Greg Sankey, wow. uh, mm-hmm. yeah, Greg Sankey's. Uh, we're not, we're not going to throw a uh, you know a bake sale for him uh, at two point <laughs> nine million, but but certainly uh, he's he's gap, he, yeah, but he's earned a he's earned a, a big piece of cake there with with this deal that he's done, and and the conference flourishes like you know Kentucky uh, women won the volleyball championship. Uh, it's not just just football, and all the money they bring in from football benefits all these other programs. And what I, I was really impressed with is that during COVID, we heard so many colleges. Wiping out programs, women's track and field, men's track and field at, at Clemson, the rowing team out at Stanford, the wrestling team at the University of Cincinnati. And he said not one program at any of the 14 schools in the Southeastern Conference were canceled or dropped or wiped out because of COVID. And I think that's, that's great.
1: I, I think about when, when they had a chance to ask him, And Mr. Sankey, because only eight of you guys have been the commissioner of the SEC since 1933, and only eight. We've had more presidents Mm. than we've had SEC commissioners. And the weight of that, uh, I was impressed, you know, when he was talking about it, that, you know, yeah, this is something that I I cherish. This is something that, you know, I, I don't take this for granted. And now you know, it, it, me. I'm like the chairman of the SEC. I'm all nervous in there, and it's like you know, hey, give me a pillow or something, whatever. But you know, uh, Greg Sankey has a, a lot of get up and go, and I I love to see that. And he's he's going to be a force to to reckon with I in agree. the SEC for many many yep. years to come. You bet.
3: My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since the kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of my. We have a
1: chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week.
3: Now! Uh-oh. <laughs> Here it is. I'm really nervous about so this one.
1: Time oh. for the number of the week. Now, see, you thought I was going to say something like, now, how much does Greg Sankey make? Nuh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> this, this week, we're going to do this family feud style. <laughs> oh. So, here's the deal. Changing it up. We're changing it up. Uh, winner gets the points. Uh... And I'll I'll ask a question here. Now, because we don't have a buzzer system, either Scarlett or Lynchy are just going to come in first and say, got it. And then I'll I'll answer. So you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Here we go.
4: Hopefully we'll get it.
1: Top five answers on the board. Here's the question. Give me the colleges that have produced the most active NFL players in this season.
4: Ooh, this season.
3: Alabama. Oh, you didn't buzz in. <laughs> oh, bzz, bzz. Yeah, buzzing in. All right, <laughs> Lynchy. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Steve Harvey, like you, you just don't get to say the answer, and then you know it's like you know you got to buzz in. All right, since you buzzed in, okay, Lynchy. I'm going to go Alabama. All right. That's number one on the board. And that's 53. 53 being that's the uh, active number of players in the NFL in this 2021-22 season. Now, uh, are you going to play or pass? I'm going to play. Okay. He's going to play. All right. (laughs) All right. We're on a clock here. So I'm timing you, man. Uh, We got two, three, four, and five. Lynchy. The colleges that have produced the most active NFL players in the 2021-22 season well I'm gonna go with Georgia Georgia that's number four and that's 35 more points uh, the Ohio State University oh man that's number two that's 47 again that's all these numbers here are the the active players from these colleges
3: oh this is a uh, this this one was big a couple of years ago Louisiana State lSU. That's number three at 46.
4: We have two more.
3: We have one
4: more.
3: One more.
1: Stalling, man. Fighting Irish of Notre sure. Dame. Wow. Yep. You sure okay? got it, buddy. That's so you know, all five at 34. So, yeah. See, Scarlet needed to buzz in, man.
4: <laughs> I mean I was thinking Florida. I was thinking I, I read Clemson's name Flo- all the time. Florida's eight. Florida's eight. Clemson's
1: mm. six. If Clemson yeah. with thirty-three, Florida's eight at okay. thirty-two. And if you want the I have the other ones here. Miami? Seven, no, Miami's not on the board. Hmm. Uh hmm. seven is Iowa at thirty three. Well. Wow. Uh Michigan ninth also at thirty two tied with Florida and Oklahoma at thirty one.
4: How many yeah. of those schools are um SEC schools?
1: Uh, well, obviously, um, Alabama and Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, LSU. Yep, LSU. Yep. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, is Florida?
4: Notre Dame yep. isn't, is yep. it?
3: No, it, Independent. Independent, yep. okay. Independent. So. You notice that no, nobody from the Pac-12. Nobody. <laughs> nobody from the Pac-12 yeah, well, the to, top ten, I, it, yeah. I mean, Southern Cal used to lead lead the league in players. In yeah, the, remember that? The, the, at one point, yeah. Back in
1: the day. What,
4: like USC?
3: Yeah. yeah. In, in, in Texas, in Penn State.
4: Didn't OJ come from USC?
3: He did. Yes. Yes. Heisman Trophy. Yes, 68. he did.
4: Yeah, See, back in the day.
1: Thank you. Now, now Lynchy goes on to the bonus round, but we'll play
0: that. next <laughs> week. Uh, This has been the
1: Bloomberg Business of Sports Show. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Barr Sports.
4: I'm Scarlett Foo. I'll be crying myself to sleep for <laughs> for not even placing in, in one of the top fives.
3: The, the family feud format. we moved on from The Price is Right. you told we, we do in our spare time watching game shows. I'm Lynchy. You can follow me at Lynchie WCVB. I'm going back to YouTube right now.
1: Don't worry, Scarlett. we got some lovely party gifts for you. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for joining us. Tune in again next week for the latest on the stories moving big old money in the world of sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports and Bloomberg Radio around the world.